Kiora, welcome to B Side Stories. I'm Laura Kewen. I have a very special episode today, a very different episode. I'll be devoting the entire show to our friends and neighbors, the Oceania humpback whales. I've got two interviews to share and one big story about how these humpback whales have a very special place in New Zealand's history. On the show today, we're solving a mystery, because for a long time, when the Oceania humpbacks would swim south, through the Pacific, past the Kermadec Islands, and down the east coast of New Zealand, no one knew exactly where they were going. And the population of this group of whales seems to be recovering from whaling much more slowly than other populations, like, for example, their sporting rivals, the East Australian humpback whales. So one group of intrepid researchers, led by Rochelle Constantine from Auckland University, went out to find where these whales were headed. James Tremlett was on the trip, and he talked to me in the Wellington Access studio. I'm James Tremlett. I do oceany things. What was your role in the research vessel? I was a general dog's body um, on board our, our research ship, the RV Braveheart. I suppose I, I just generally helped out with all kinds of research-related tasks. James also wrote an article about the trip for the July 2016 New Zealand Geographic. I'll let James explain what the scientists and Oceany people were there for. So we went to the Kermadec Islands, which are um, about halfway in a straight line between Tauranga and Tonga. We, we stayed in and around Raoul Island, um, which is the largest island of the Kermadec group. The scientists knew that there was this population of whales in Oceania that breed up in the tropical islands from sort of from New Caledonia through Tonga and into Niue. And then in about the springtime, they migrate south and they migrate through the Kermadec Islands, sort of acts as kind of a funnel. But the scientists had no idea where these whales go to. Now, to understand why scientists are so interested to learn where these whales are going, you have to go back about... A hundred years. In the early 20th century in New Zealand, the whaling industry was in decline. American, French, and domestic whalers had been hunting the southern right whale in New Zealand waters for quite some time, and their numbers were dwindling to the point where many onshore whaling operations were shutting down. The attention of the whaling industry instead turned to the humpback whale. A hundred years ago, This is how whaling worked. Whalers would be at sea, looking out at the ocean, waiting for a whale to breathe. Then they would sail over and harpoon the whale, and the whale would usually live and begin swimming away, so the whale would literally drag the ship until it was too exhausted to swim anymore, and the whalers would spear it again to finally kill it. Whalers were so good at hunting humpback whales in the southern hemisphere that commercial whaling in the 20th century brought humpbacks close to extinction. The last humpback whale caught in New Zealand was in the Cook Strait on Wellington's doorstep. It was 1964. Commercial whaling shut down, and a few years later it was banned outright. Different whale populations have had different success in recovering from the whaling era. This is Olive Andrews. I talked to her on Skype. I'm Olive Andrews, the Marine Program Manager for Conservation International, New Zealand and Pacific Islands program. She was also on the research trip, and I'll let her explain why the whales they went to find in the Kermadec Islands were special. Oceania humpback whales essentially 
um, go from New Caledonia all the way eastward across the South Pacific to uh, French Polynesia. And this population um, is still endangered while humpback populations around the world have been recently delisted um, to species of less concern, the ones in the Pacific um, are not showing the same rates of recovery and therefore are still considered to be endangered. So the mystery of where these whales are headed every summer becomes an important part of understanding why this population is recovering more slowly. To solve the mystery, the scientists like Olive and the dogs' bodies like James became modern-day whale hunters. Turns out modern whale hunting is similar to 100 years ago, but it's much more conscientious. Once we were at Raoul Island, we operated from two small boats. We'd be out uh, out at sea in our, in our little boats with four or five of us in each of the tenders and, and just looking for whale spouts, well not spouts, blows I suppose is the technical term. So when a whale exhales, it sends up a column of warm misty air and that air just hangs, the mist from that hangs in the air. And so we'd look for these and then we'd try to get close to the whales, which is sort of more or less difficult depending on the mood of the whales and the condition of the sea. We'd try to, to approach the whales so that they're aware of us but aren't, aren't shocked or, or distressed too much because we're, we're looking out for the welfare of the whales. And then there would be one person, our, our tagger, Simon Childerhouse from Nelson, who's, who's tagged whales all over the world, and he, he'd be standing up in, in sort of a metal cage that we'd mounted on the bow of one of these boats. So he'd be standing there like some kind of medieval whaler with a what's called a tagging gun. So it's, it's, a, it's an instrument that um, Simon would mount on his shoulder and it's powered by compressed air from a scuba tank. And so that fires the tag into the back of the whale, essentially. The tags that we were using are, are called transdermal tags. So they actually go transdermal through the skin into the whale. So they're about 30 centimetres long or a bit, bit more, about an inch wide, and they've got some barbs on the end, which sounds quite, quite brutal um, and horrifying, but compared to the size of the whale, it's, it's quite a small instrument, and it just penetrates through the skin into the blubber. And then extending from the end of that tag, there's a small sort of a flexible antenna that uh, sends a satellite signal up to us whenever the whale surfaces to breathe. So it gives them a little injection on their back. Kind of. With an antenna hanging out. Exactly. That'll be expelled naturally from the whale. Um, after a matter of months, the tag will just fall out in the same way as if you, we have a little thorn in our skin or something. It'll just work its way to the surface. Far yeah. out. So there's a lot of pressure on him to get it right? Yeah, yep. What happens if he misses? Um, if he misses, the tag goes into the sea and and sinks to the bottom. So there's definitely definitely a lot of pressure on Simon during that time. Um, the tags are sort of worth about 3,000 American dollars each, and there's not a lot of money for whale science. So I think Simon was definitely feeling the pressure to get the tags into the whales. There was twice when he missed, uh, which I thought was pretty good, out of two weeks of taking pot shots at whales. And one of those tags, we actually managed to retrieve the, the chef from the Braveheart, our cook, uh, Charlie. He, he put his scuba gear on and, and went down to find the tag because it was, it was in shallow water, and he pulled it back up. Water. Man, good job, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, legend. The research included more than just tagging the whales. Olive Andrews was in charge of photographing the whales, too. Tell me about taking the photos. Is that a hard job to do? Um, actually, it, it is, and you become quite good at it over time, but it depends entirely on the size of the boat that you're working from and the ocean conditions. 
uh, in the Kermadex we were working from a very small boat indeed, um, about a four metre uh, inflatable and our target species are about uh, 16 to 18 metres in length, weighing 40 tonnes and we were in open ocean conditions a lot of the time in uh, two metre swells. So um, this is quite tricky, so it's, you, you have to be able to balance well. And um, I guess it's knowing the animal's behaviour well enough if you've, if you've spent time around the whales and are able to anticipate what their, their behaviours or movements are going to be, you can position yourself um, and, and have your hand on the trigger when they're just about to raise their tail flukes. So you have, you have that experience that you were talking about of knowing about what a whale is going to do next. Yeah, I've spent many years um, photographing whales in different parts of the Pacific um, and around the world. And this, um, using the photography is really one of the greatest tools that we have for whale research. It's one of the greatest tools they have because there's an amazing catalogue of whale ID photos that's been collected around the world. And researchers can find out almost immediately where the whales have come from. And one thing that was really neat was that I saw a whale that I know from Nui. Um, so I run a, a research project in the island of Nui in partnership with Omatafawa, which is a local uh, research organisation there. And we have over the years identified quite a few whales that, that go to Nui to breed. And one of them um, we saw on our Kermadec voyage. So it was kind of neat. We've seen quite a bit of interchange at the Kermadecs between known um, breeding populations in New Caledonia, in Tonga, Nui and, um, and Cook Island. So it's quite neat to see some of our whales from other study sites in New Zealand waters. So the whales were coming from all over the Pacific to meet at Raoul Island. Some had travelled a thousand kilometres out of their way to pass through the Kermadec Islands on the way to Antarctica. Another task for the researchers was collecting whale song. Olive explained how they did it. We have a hydrophone that's an underwater microphone. Um, it's on about 15 metres of cable and it goes into a Zoom H4 uh, digital recorder. And so we're able to drop the hydrophone over the side of the boat, turn the boat engine off and drift and we did sort of random sampling, uh, acoustic sampling for uh, 20 minutes at a time, usually a, a couple of times a day, uh, to try and get different uh, samples of, of what the whales are singing this particular season in the codex. So we have certain um, themes to the song, can have up to five or so uh, themes. The song usually goes for around uh, 20 minutes to half an hour in full, and the whales repeat uh, the song themes um, very, very specifically. Um, but we still don't really know what the song function is, other than that it is sung on the breeding grounds. So it's clearly something to do with breeding and mating, and it may be a way that the female humpback whales can um, judge the well, the, the mating capabilities or um, something that they're looking for in, in, in what the males are, are saying or singing. I asked Olive why the whale song is worth listening to. So humpback whales in the Pacific um, are basically singing a, a song that is moving eastward over time. And so what's being sung on the east coast of Australia this year by, by humpback whales there, that song is moving eastward over time. So uh, what they're singing this year will be sung next year in New Caledonia and the following year in Tonga and the following year in the Cook Islands and French Polynesia and so on. Um, well, research suggests basically that singing males also attract other males. 
Um, so the younger males perhaps are coming um, closer to the older males in order to learn um, and transmit the song. So it's it's a socially transmitted um, song. It's one that's a learned behaviour. It's it's basically a cultural um, culturally learned behaviour. So this song of the Oceania humpback whales and its movement over time um, is evidence of larger scale documentation of cultural learning outside of humans. And if that's not enough of a reason, it also just sounds cool. It kind of makes you realize how little we understand about intelligence and communication and, you know, just life. James told me about how he could sometimes hear the song while he was lying awake at night. And I think it only happened once or twice while we were at Raal. Often there was a generator going on Braveheart, which sort of blanks out all the sounds of the ocean lapping against the hull. But um, but real occasionally there'd be a moment of quiet, and and um, sometimes on a still night there would be um, must have been a whale close by to the vessel, and you would um, you would hear that song kind of reverberating up um, through the hull. Um, yeah, you sort of press your air against the against the steel ship and. Um, and hear the whale songs kind of thrumming upwards. Some really special moments. Another exceptional thing about this research trip was its location. Yeah, apparently more people reach the summit of Mount Everest annually than than get to Rowell Island, so um, it really was a privilege. Certainly it's an interesting place that attracts a lot of animals to it in terms of uh, upwelling of nutrients and a very um, healthy marine ecosystem there. That healthy marine ecosystem helped Olive and James to have some amazing encounters with wildlife while they were there. Just listen to some of the things they saw. There are a few of us on on the boat that went snorkeling as as much as we can in our spare time and yet plenty of Galapagos sharks around in the water, incredibly rich and diverse marine life. Um, that's quite different to, to what we see around the mainland. So things like, like sea turtles, things like corals, that we don't really think of being in New Zealand waters, but they are because they're up in the Kermadex. We were there to study humpback whales, but we also encountered quite a few other creatures of interest, one of which was a blue whale. Um, we were watching a pile of humpback whales from our tiny boat, and there was a flash of <laughs> colour under our small boat, and there was a, um, a probably about a 20-metre pygmy blue whale went straight under our boat and checked us out. Yeah, that was quite interesting to see a blue whale up in those waters. Um, We know nothing about where they're going or what they're doing up there. When you guys went for a jump in, did you ever jump in next to the whales? Or is that I tried. I tried really hard. Yeah. Um, You you do need a a permit from Doc to to enter the water with the whales in the Kermadex, um, which we had. The whales were a lot more elusive in the Kermadex than than they are sometimes up up in Tonga and up in the other islands. Yeah, every time we hopped in the water, they would sort of speed off. Hopped in the water with a bunch of dolphins, a bunch of sharks, but not um, not with a whale in the Kermadex this time. And also we we had an interesting encounter with a shark. Did find the body of a dead whale calf floating in the water and a gigantic great white shark feeding on it. We were able to photograph the shark and film it feeding on this humpback, which was a very healthy humpback calf. Later, um, New Zealand shark expert Clinton Duffy uh, when he saw the footage, was able to identify the individual shark. And uh, it was an individual that he tagged as a juvenile 
um, off the south coast of New Zealand. And uh, with the satellite tag on it, it had gone all the way to the Chesterfield Islands near New Caledonia, um, around a 1,500 kilometre um, distance, uh, most likely to feed on humpback whale calves. Aside from the occasional great white shark, the Kermadec Islands are a great place for whales. They're remote, quiet, and uncolonized. It seems like the perfect meeting place. It was interesting to see some of the mothers and calves come together and kind of socialize. So, so usually my impression is that the mothers and calves migrate together, but often not in a group with each other. And then when they came together at Rao, they there was an opportunity for more social interaction. So we'd see two or three mother-calf pairs come together and the calves would be playing and the mums would be interacting. It was nice. No wonder that Oceania humpbacks will travel well out of their way to cruise through the Kermadex. It seems to be good for their mood, too. Humpbacks are wonderful whales, I think. I'm not sure how, how they actually feel inside, but they appear to be very joyful, sort of vivacious kind of whales. They would um, often have a, exhibit a behaviour called breaching, where they sort of explode their entire body out of the water and they'll crash back down. No one's really sure why they do it. It kind of looks like they're just having fun to me. They would sometimes they would lie on their backs and they've got these giant pectoral, pectoral fins and they would do what we call peck slaps. So they'd roll from side to side, slapping the water with these giant fins. And you'd often see them off in the distance, just just doing this. You'll remember we started the show with a mystery. Where are these whales going, and how does it help us to understand their rate of recovery? Well, the team were able to attach satellite tags to 24 whales, and they collected an awesome amount of data. Rochelle Constantine was the lead researcher on the trip. She wasn't able to speak to me, but here's a clip of her explaining the research findings to Alison Balance on Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand. We've been able to weave quite a neat picture of where these whales are coming from. So whales are coming from all of these places which are around about you know, 1,500 to 1,800 kilometres away from Rao. These whales have left, they're swimming, swimming, they come past Rao. And then once they sort of started heading south of the Kermadec group, they then spread out and um, some whales travelled in a a sort of southeasterly direction. They were only a few few hundred kilometres shy of the West Antarctic Peninsula. That's how far they went. In fact, our longest whale from Rao to swimming to where it stopped in Antarctica was about 7,000 kilometres in a straight line and it took it nine weeks to swim 7,000 kilometres. This whale probably had about 1,500 kilometres before that coming from the breeding ground so it's about 8,500 kilometres one way. And 8,500 kilometres is a very long way even for a whale. What does it mean for those whales that are travelling you know almost 9,000 kilometres one way um, versus the whales that swam reasonably straight down from Raal down to the Ross Sea region. They're, they're at least a few thousand kilometres shorter, their migration distance. Uh, and then when you compare that to the East Australian whales that come from sort of off, off Gladstone Way and they swim down, many of them stop at South Australia off Eden there and feed before they head straight south. They have a very short migration path, so that distance between East Australia and their Antarctic feeding grounds is relatively short compared to these whales we had from Oceania that were heading all the way over to the Antarctic Peninsula. Here's Olive again. Perhaps if they're using more energy uh, and travelling further, or even though they may feed just as much as the other whales, they have to expend that energy again to get back to their breeding area and therefore maybe in, in less uh, breeding condition, 
they um, this may explain why the Oceania population of whales is not um, increasing quite as fast as other populations. So the endangered Oceania humpbacks are world travelers. They swim thousands of kilometers further than other humpback whale populations. This might make them a bit tired and a bit slower to repopulate. And their enormous range also exposes them to more hazards and challenges along the way. So um, even though there is a whale sanctuary in the Antarctic, there's clear um, mandates by some countries to um, kill whales for scientific purposes. So, um, yeah, whales are never really fully protected. And some of the other threats and impacts that they, um, they come across on their journey are things like uh, fisheries in terms of uh, ghost nets and crab pots and other things that may entangle them. And we see whales every year um, up the New Zealand and Australian coast that have been entangled in various uh, pieces of fishing gear and can lose limbs um, and can end up uh, getting beached or um, stranded because of those impacts. So um, that, along with climate change, uh, it's an impact that's very, very hard to measure and it's hard to, to, to know what the impact will be on these endangered animals um, where they used to have no uh, anthropogenic noise in their environment. We've introduced thousands and thousands of, of ships and other industrial noise to the marine environment. We are certainly seeing impacts already from um, oil and gas exploration and other sorts of um, extractive industries in terms of the sound that they use to find pockets of oil and gas. This can have um, an impact on the health of, of whales because the sound travels as a pressure wave um, and can cause internal ruptures and things like that in, in whales. Olive calls understanding and protecting whales our shared responsibility. So in looking at the map of these tagged animals, they may go through um, the, the, the territorial waters or, or exclusive economic zones of several countries. And so as such, there is shared responsibility. Beyond conservation, James thinks knowing about whales can give us other insights, maybe even into our own future. It's important to understand how everything fits together, right? Because we're trying to make a living on this planet as well. And if we don't understand what the rest of what the rest of all these ecosystems are doing, all the ecosystems that we interact with, if we don't have an understanding of what's happening there, then we there's less um yeah, less potential for us to um keep living on this planet in, in the same way that we would like to. These Oceania whales in particular have a special place in our history. For me, anyway, these whales are kind of a reminder of our own history and how we came to be here. Um, so we, we know from the stories of the, the first Polynesian migrations, one of the cues they used to find Aotearoa was to follow the whales um, as they travelled um, fr from the tropical Pacific and through the Kermadex and then down, down to the east coast. So that extended migratory path, the one that makes them a bit slower to grow their population... It's the path that first brought Polynesian explorers to the shores of Aotearoa. That path has been passed down from mother to calf for thousands of years, and we still see it today. One, one or maybe two of the whales that we tagged did actually travel down around the east coast of the North Island, and we know there's oral histories of, of whales doing that um, back in the past, and, and many of, um, of the hapu that, that have stories of whales in their history are sort of around that um, East Cape area of the North Island. These whales have been a part of our history from the very beginning. Luckily, there's an enormously collaborative group of scientists across the Pacific who are obsessed with whales. Yeah, yeah, they're obsessed by whales. <laughs>
and they are good at finding funding and support from multiple sources. Uh, it was led by the University of Auckland's uh, Rochelle Constantine, but we had support from Blue Planet Marine, our colleagues from New Caledonia, myself from Conservation International. We had funding from Pew, from others as well, like Auckland Museum was a great supporter of ours with the online um, tracking of the, of the expedition, and New Zealand's Ministry for Primary Industries um, also gave us some funding. The Australian Antarctic Division was also involved in terms of the actual satellite telemetry data. So it was a, it was a cast of thousands, essentially. And Olive told me that that's what it takes. All of these people and organizations working together and helping us to understand and protect our amazing humpback neighbors. These whales have made New Zealand what it is in the past, and they'll continue to share our future. You've been listening to B-Side Stories. To hear more interviews with the people who make Wellington tick, visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash bsidebroadcasts. That's b-side-broadcasts. Also, search for B-Side Stories on Facebook. And you can find us on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks today to James Tremlett and Olive Andrews for talking to me. Thanks to the Wellington Access Radio studio where this was recorded. You can read James Tremlett's article on these whales in the New Zealand Geographic, Issue 140. The article is called The Humpback Highway. And James is off to England soon to continue his graduate education into oceany things at Cambridge University. Good luck, James. You can listen to the Our Changing World interview with Rochelle Constantine online. Go to rnz.co.nz. I'm Laura Kewen. Thank you for listening.